So this morning, what I want you to consider, and we're going to read together, all right? We're, we're sitting here together this morning, and I, I just want us to think about we don't. If you're new here, uh, we don't always do it like this. Uh, we, we use a pulpit, usually. We like pulpits, all right, and preaching from them. It's important that we don't want to give up the pulpit either. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Uh, we, we want to proclaim the Word of God faithfully, and, and we'll proclaim it even still this morning. Uh, so this is unique time, but part of the imagery, uh, part of the understanding and being able to really embrace the Lord's Supper is being able to, to really embrace and understand what's happening at the Supper. And the fact is we are at a table together. Okay, and um, and so we're going to speak about that and what it means to take the Lord's Supper. We see the Lord's Supper being addressed here in uh, chapter 11. I'm going to read that and follow. And what I just want you to be thinking about is the meal and the fact and, and, and try to imagine that you are at this table with me. Okay, this morning that we're all uh, looking at each other. Eye to eye, just like you would at a, at a nice, round, big family dinner table, okay? So, so keep that in mind. If you'll follow in verse 17, I will read through uh, verse 34. <clears throat> now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this manner, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. And many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about other matters when I come. So we've talked about, and you can see that if you're taking notes on the back of the bulletin there, you can see 
This is this series is called Our Guide to Church Trouble, which answers the question, why write 1 Corinthians, right? Because the church is in trouble. One of the overarching troubles this church is having is unity, isn't it? It's togetherness. It's oneness. If you think about a marriage, the goal is to experience that oneness that God has purposed, right? If you think, I mean, you can imagine even just as you're sitting there that all the things that can come into a marriage that, that causes trouble in that marriage, that, that is a threat to the intimacy that that marriage is supposed to experience and know as God has designed it, right? Uh, and the same uh, is true for the church. You see, while there are different things that can come into a home that become barriers to the intimacy that the Lord designed for that home, so too uh, there are different things that can come into a church that become barriers for that church. That church is to experience a oneness in an intimacy. And there were some good things going on in Corinth. We sometimes forget about it because it's such a hard letter with a lot of hard rebu rebuke. But, but we see a few good things in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Now in 10, he immediately get, comes at them. Okay? But, but Paul, in, in chapter 1, 4 through 9, he does say some positive things. But he mostly fixates on trouble. Right? He mostly fixates on the trouble they're in. Right? And he moves from those compliments in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, he moves from those compliments and thanks to stern warnings and rebukes. Doesn't he? He moves from, from celebrating that they are believers to calling them to say, hey, y'all, let's act like believers. And he presses forward in the letter with these types of things ultimately calling them to be unified. And so here we are at the table. The table is where we eat the Lord's Supper, right? When we refer to the table, we're referring to the Lord's Supper. And it's at this supper that we are reminded of exactly how we are unified, right? If taken according to what we just read, if the supper is taken according to what we just read, if the church is faithful to do it, as it's stated here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord has preserved this word for us. Why? Because he knew that Corinth wasn't the only church that was going to struggle with divisions, right? And so he, he preserves it for us so that we can come to the table and be mindful of what we are doing. And if we are mindful of what we are doing, to take the meal according to God's design here, it will help us, church, hear this. Because we'll do it regularly. We'll, we'll do, we're going to take the supper at least, uh, at the very least, we're, we're committed to doing our best to make sure we get it in 12 times a year. But I don't like doing it just once so if you've counted, you've probably counted 13 or maybe one more each time because personally I'm convicted I don't want to do it just once a month. So if I get 13 and we did it more than once a month, right? That's how I, that, the math works, okay? So because if we take it, right, if we take it according to its design, it does help us battle. And it helps us battle with the right things and in the right way. And we really are, we really will remain unified.
And so we're going to talk about that, and I think we'll see that. There are two ordinances that are given to the church. The Lord's Supper and Baptism, right? The, these ordinances, both of them visibly portray what binds us as a body. They visibly put on display death and life, right? Before Christ, right? What do we know? Death. After Christ, life, right? The, the table visibly puts on display disunity and unity, okay? We saw that in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, right? This idea of unity around Christ, right? Before Christ, it w- our, our, our relationship with God was disunity, one of disunity, but after Christ, unity, right? The table, uh, in the, at the table, we see it, it, it puts on display enmity and friendship, right? Before Christ, we we're enmity with God. After, we get to sit at his table, friendship. Isn't that awesome? Again, there at the table, we see uh, before Christ, we have disfellowship, disfellowship, after Christ, what do we have? Fellowship. Amen. Amen. And this is also characteristic of our relationship with one another there at the table. So that's like what Christ does with our relationship with God on this, this vertical level. But two, there at the table, that's why I'm saying, hey, I'm sitting with you. Like we're sitting together at this table looking each other in the eye. Look what God has purchased for us. Unity. Right, not disunity, right, not enmity, not disfellowship, not division, not groups, not classes, not status, not not separating over ethnic barriers and all that stuff. Man, we are one at the foot of the cross, and we are one at this table. He wants us not to just have that concept in theory, like we would see sort of generally, like the church is united, the universal church is united. Right, And that is true. We are united in Christ. But he wants the church, the local church, to experience that unity when we look at each other and sit at the table together around the blood and his broken body for us. He wants us to experience that, to know it, right? Not just as theory, but in reality. When we eat and we are reminded, the Lord's table speaks to what got us out of trouble, church, at the most fundamental level, <laughs> right? Right, we talk about churches in trouble, but the Lord's table speaks of what got us out of trouble at the most fundamental level, and what, were, what was the trouble we were in? Our sin, right? Uh, we were caught in sin, not just some sin of Adam or our mother Eve, our father Adam, not their sin, our sin, Right? I sinned, you sinned, and Jesus, Jesus gave his body, shed his blood to rescue us from sin's consequences. And if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved from sin's consequences, aren't we? We're out of trouble with God, right? Because that's the consequences, the wrath of God and judgment of God. 
Without Christ's sacrifice, it would remain on us. But because of Christ's sacrifice, if we put our eyes and put our faith and put our trust in Jesus, the wrath and the judgment of God no longer remains on those of us who put our faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. We're confessing this at the meal. And this is why we gather, right? It's why we gather in here weekly. It's also why we gather around this table right now. Because we've all been bought with a price. Right? What is that price? The blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. And the table that we all gather at, it might be helpful, right? I think it's helpful, which is why we're here. There's a little wobbly table. That's dangerous. But it's a round table for this idea, this concept. Now, you don't see gather around a round table. Okay, you don't see that in the text, but so so don't take this too far. I'm just wanting us to experience something here of what is being communicated when we eat this meal together. Okay, okay. As you can see here, well, I think it's helpful in terms of imagery to help us think about what is communicated when we're gathering together. At a table like this, we see that there is no hierarchy, right? That's important for us to meditate on that point. Because it, it, it would call us to consider that even Monday through Saturday, right? How do we treat each other? There is no hierarchy at the table. It's important. That means none of us got to the table because anything we did of our own doing. Isn't it important for us to remember that? Right? Isn't it important that, that when we come to the table for us to remember that the only reason any, any one of us got a seat here at this feast is because we received a free invitation from Jesus? That's it. That's the only reason I get to sit here with you. Oh, man. Right? And that invitation that you and I received, it just, we need to be clear, it didn't become, uh, come to us, you know, we didn't get it in the mail because we were one of the special ones because we deserved it somehow, right? We just got to be real clear because it's humbling when we think of that. And we think of how, like, we're all at the table together. All who eat at this table are equally, each one of us, we are equally in need of Jesus humbling himself. That's an important point as we think of the table, as we think of our unity, as we think of battling against divisions. We each are in need of Jesus to humble himself. Well then, that ought to be characteristic of us when we come to the table. We ought to be able to humble ourselves. Right, we, we each come to the table. We were in need of Jesus dying for us. Sacrificing for us. So that we could have our sins forgiven. Right, it's here at the table as we eat the meal. Right, this meal points to his death. And we are reminded of Jesus' payment for our sins. And that that payment has been accomplished. It's been done there's victory. So the first point that we take from this morning's text is simply this, 
the, the table is for the better. The table is for the better. Look there with me at verse 17. Now in giving this instruction, I did not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The instruction that God has Paul write to the church, Corinth then and to us now, right? It's to us now. Do we believe that? Amen. It is, it is, he, he is writing not to give them a thumbs up. It's clear here in verse 17, isn't it? But he is writing to give them a rebuke. He says, I'm not writing, look there, to praise you. Don't be confused. Don't dismiss this rebuke as irrelevant to you, church. Kind of like he says over in chapter 10, exhorting them. Uh, because here you did have, you had a kind of an arrogant church that thought they had it all together. Because they, they did have, we, again, we, we, so, we criticized the things that they had a mess, but they had a lot of, like, really, I mean, they were very active in the Spirit. And we'll talk about that eventually as we get into chapter 12. They had a lot of really awesome things going on, and I think they became so puffed up over it. And, you know, so Paul's writing to say, hey, man, don't be arrogant and think, right, that, that you as a church are above this rebuke, right? They're thinking somehow that they were probably the, the model Christian church, the thinking they had it all together. And that's why, that's in part why he warns them over in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, I think it is, hey, who, whoever thinks he can, you, you better be careful lest you fall, right? And so it's a serious warning, it's a serious rebuke that, that is meant for us today as well. And we want to receive it. Right? God's word wants to be very clear so that we don't misunderstand. He was very clear so that they didn't misunderstand that this was a confrontational moment. He says there in verse 17, they're coming together and it's not for the better. That's sad when you think about what they're coming together around. It should have been for the better. He says it's for their worse. Coming together, just think of that, that concept. This is the congregation, right, of the Lord, the ones that he has gathered. I suppose there are possibly some in the church that Paul is writing to who don't know the nature of all the conflicts that are happening, and I think of that. I think there are often times when, when there are conflicts happening within our body, and certainly not everybody knows about each of those. And quite honestly, that's how it should be, right? In many cases, because many times those conflicts can be dealt with within the, the circle of the people that are involved, and then we can move on, praise God. That's how it's supposed to work in some ways. And certainly we have seen, too, just in the way that Paul addresses this church, that, that not everyone in Corinth is necessarily in sin. Yet he refers... To everyone by saying, hey, you, church, come together. And he's referring to the entire membership, the local bride. Right? For us, that would be uh, all those that are included here in our membership directly, directory. For those that are new and just visiting, you know that uh, you may not know, but we only list in our directory in terms of the faces people that are, have covenanted with us. All right, and of course we have to update this regularly and it needs updated. Uh, but that's who Paul's speaking to. 
And he's calling on all of them to be concerned about the rebuke that he's given them. Right? It's the old, if you want to say it this way or think of it this way, it's like, it's the concept is, the reason I think that he would want everybody to hear this word, even though everybody may not be involved in, in the sin or, or may not even know every detail of everything that's going on, he, he, wants, he wants everybody to, to recognize they all need to take responsibility. It's, you know, you've heard that you're only as strong as your weakest link kind of thing, meaning it's affecting everyone. And he wants them to understand that, that our decisions in the body of Christ affect the whole body, don't they? And that's important. I think we can, we're, and maybe, maybe us more than them, that we tend to be very individualistic, autonomous society, and so we, we think uh, that, that our, you know, the, the person sitting behind us or in, front, in terms of their decisions uh, don't impact the rest of the body, but they in fact do, and God's Word teaches that they in fact do. And so we ought to be concerned. If your brother or sister is sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, across the room from you, we ought to be concerned if they're involved in sexual, in sexual immorality or gossip. We ought to be concerned. If they're railing against others, we ought to be concerned. If we know them to be greedy, we ought to be concerned. Or to swindle others, we ought to be concerned. Or to verbally abuse others, that ought to concern us. We, we ought not just sit there and go, oh, that's, that's not me. I'm glad I don't behave like that. If, if they're a member here with us, that ought to concern us and we have a responsibility. Or... Or when we hear stuff, we, it ought to concern us if we have this attitude. I'm listing all things we've gone over in, in that, that, are, that Paul even mentions here in the letter to the Corinthian church. All right? This is just right from Scripture. And, you know, also we ought to be concerned when somebody says, Hey, I follow Ted more than Matt. Ted, that's me if you're new, and I'm one of the elders here, and Matt is another one of the elders here, and this is something that Corinth was, was getting involved in. Or I follow Matt more than Kyle. That ought to concern us, that kind of language, spiritually disguising and pitting one leader against another and disguising it. Paul rebukes all of these things because it impacts the whole body. And so I'm just saying these things ought to concern us. So he's writing to all of us. Right, And so you can real easily say, man, I'm glad I'm not, or I, I don't know what's going on over there. I can just dismiss, but we all ought to weigh in in terms of our concern for one another. And, and certainly, it's why we call each other. If you open the directory and look to it there, you see even some of the prayer requests that we have here. are the, Some of the prayer requests we we recycle each time. We just keep them there every time for you to pray. Others, there's another set that we update on each printing. This is a call because we know we are not above this division. And we need to be praying for one another, don't we? And so Paul wants everybody to know that this kind of thing impacts the whole body. He, he, 
he, I think, to, to say, as, as we come together, as they are coming together, they ought to be very concerned. We ought to be very concerned about divisions that are among us. But instead, they were coming together and, uh, yeah, <laughs> and they weren't coming together. Does that make sense? It sounds like it may not, but they were coming together, but they weren't coming together. That's what it's saying. You're coming together, <laughs> but you weren't. Uh, because your gathering isn't accomplishing what it's supposed to be accomplishing. It's not for the better. It's not resulting in you taking on the likeness of Christ as a team. Right? I want to be a team. You know, one of the things I enjoy most and get frustrated most about my marriage I enjoy most when we're functioning as a team. I love it. It's so much fun, right? And, and when you're functioning, everybody's functioning in their giftedness and their roles and their responsibilities, man, and you are just charging along, and it's like, man, we are just like a freight train. Get out of our way, like in a fun way, right? Like it is, we're just tracking and rolling down the road, everything. Man, we're just moving and cruising, and getting things done. It is fun to function as a team, isn't it? Yeah, in the roles that God's put to us. But boy, one of the things that frustrates me the most is when she refuses to function as a team. Right? You know what I'm talking about, guys. Okay. I just don't get it. I'm teasing, all right? All right. But but no, seriously, when we when when sin when we let sin creep in and and we, you know, just are struggling to figure out and to get unified. But we've got to work on that. So we just, man, it's like, don't let the sun go down. You've heard that. And so we can't because we've got it. We want to be that team that God's called us to be. It's the same for the church. And I think that's one reason why he's put it. The supper gives us this ordinance. He doesn't want us showing up as individuals. Because when we show up as individuals, man, that makes for a terrible time. It makes for a terrible church, right? And it makes for a really ineffective gospel ministry. And so this is something, just like your marriage, though, for those that are married or have been married, you know, right, that it takes work, doesn't it? It takes work. It takes forbearing. <laughs> it takes forgiving. And not just once or twice, but like all the time. And so it's the same for the church. Why is it the worst? Why does he say it's the worst? Well, when God, think of it, here's why it's the worst. Here's why their gathering is for the worst. That's, that's intense. You can't get worser than worse, can you? I don't know. Because I don't think you, that's actually grammatically... You can't. You got it? It's bad. Worse is bad. All right? And why? Well, let's think of the table. Think of what is sitting before us. This is to represent his blood. This is his body broken. Okay? See, when God sent his only son to be gruesomely crucified to bind us together... To purchase us along 
to purchase you, (laughs) when he sent his son to purchase you along with others by his sacrifice, to purchase you along with others by the shedding of his blood, and his purchase, think of his purchase, what is it accomplishing? His purchase is to unify you around the common mission. His purchase is to bind us as a unit. And then he names that unit. What does he name it? His bride is one of the names. He actually has lots of names. But one of the names of the unit is what? His bride a bride that he desires to present as radiant and pure. And instead of coming together as that unified bride for the better, they were coming together as individuals. Which without even going any further, we could understand right there how that would be for the worse. Right? A... a, uh, different words you can look at even to look at, at, at faction that's in this text or division that's in this text and it's to be like cut up. And, and I don't know if you get to a wedding and one of the, the most beautiful things that, that we all wait for, right, to, that everybody turns and looks is when the bride walks in. Right? They're waiting. And if she had to come in in pieces... You say, that's, that's really gruesome, man. That wouldn't work. Exactly. Exactly. It's not supposed to come in in pieces. And that's what he's getting at here, right? So we can understand, if that's how we're approaching it, right, that that, that, that diminishes what the blood purchased. Right? The blood purchased a bride. That is the church. He purchased you as an individual. That's true, okay? But he purchased each one of us to be part of a family, a church, one. Joined together as one, worshiping with one voice. We've talked about that. Striving to fulfill one mission. A mission driven by one gospel, grounded in one person. And so he is saying, you're coming together for the worse because when you're coming together, you're not coming together. They were not being renewed in gospel truth for the better. better. Instead, Paul says, verse 17, if you look there, Uh, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And we will discuss some divisions here that we think contextually might be happening. At least it's one of the many types of divisions we see in that Paul speak to. It's right here in the text as we move further here in this passage. So we'll discuss that more in a minute. But what I want us to think, what things might tempt us to divide. Here we are, we're sitting at the table, and I I really want you to just think about that. What things might tempt us to divide? What things have tempted us to divide? 
What things do we need to guard against so that we don't? We all have, again, we all have a responsibility to, to guard our hearts here in this. I, I was thinking about this and I was, I was writing a bunch of, of different things down, just studying the scriptures and, and really processing over this as, as we've had some, uh, a lot of stuff uh, in the last several months here in this congregation, we've had a lot of different things come up that, that we've had to deal with. And, and I was just thinking about how some of those things, when we've had to deal with those things that, that people don't always agree with how things are dealt with, and that can cause division. So I was just writing and thinking about that, and, and then I came across Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, who's a Congregationalist Puritan from the 1600s, and he writes a list of eight practices that divide. And I just want to list them to us, okay? One, associating with whispers. I, I encourage you to write these down and pray and guard. We all have to guard against these. I think these things are really going to be helpful for us as we think about the table and as we guard our hearts from being divided. Number one, associating with whispers. He says this about that point. Many men of moderate spirits, if left alone, yet meeting with men who tell them stories and speak ill of those men that heretofore they had a good opinion of, before they have examined what the truth is, there is a venom got in their spirits. Did you follow? They associated with whispers. They had, uh, he says, they, they, they thought good of the men that were being whispered about before they started listening to the whispers. And when they started listening to the whispers, the men they once thought good about, they now decided to not think good about and to attach some really rather critical judgments against those men. And he describes this as a venom, that because of the whispering, it was a venom that got in their spirits. This we have seen and experienced. We must guard against it. Two, he says, needless disputes. Needless disputes. I don't have anything written outside of that. I think we know what needless disputes can be, although it would, we, we've talked about these things before. Let's go on to three. Not keeping within the bounds God hath set. That is, inserting ourselves into situations that do not involve us. So three, I repeat it. Not keeping within the bounds that God has set. Right? Drawing up strong opinions and judgments about things that go beyond areas that God has assigned to us, right? Inserting ourselves into situations that do not involve us, he writes about how this right here can cause divisions. And uh, we have seen that. Even right here at Southern Hills, I think of my nine plus years and ten plus years as being an elder here. 
This is certainly true. These are certainly the types of things that bring divisions. Four, propagating false or evil reports. And you can imagine how that brings division, right? Right. That is, you let harmful reports be raised, matters be repeated and spread regardless of whether it's true or not. You see, regardless of whether it's true or not, propagating negative or evil things divides the church. So we must be careful with what comes out of our mouth and learn to bridle our tongues. Five, an, an inordinate, this is an interesting one, one I see, and you even could be tempted by regularly. An inordinate cleaving to some, so as denying due respect to others. An inordinate cleaving to some, so as denying due respect to others. This is so easy to entertain. How many times has, have, have, I know for me it happens just because of the nature of my work where someone will, new will, will come to the church or, or something to, to get counseling or something like that and I'll begin to share with them and, and they begin to talk about the, the men, Christian men and women who tried to help counsel them in the past. And, and how they do it is in a way to uh, extol me. Say, oh wow, the, the wisdom that, that you are giving me here in the Word. It's so helpful. I've, I've been to so many different people and they have not been able to, to help me and speak so clearly as you have. Or, or how about, uh, I've got three, you know, I, I've been to three other persons here in the church, but you're the first to give me godly, wise counsel. Right? How does that tempt, you see where I'm going with this? I don't know if I explained it initially well enough, but, but I think it's this inordinate cleaving to some so as denying due respect to others. I think that's what he's getting at there, is that, oh, you're the first to give me godly counsel. I've been to three others. Hmm. <laughs> what they said. <laughs> right? And it's easy in that moment to feel, oh, the honored. And to be puffed up. But what we, want to, what, what we need to see here is I don't, we don't want to receive honor that detracts from others being shown honor. You see? And so watch yourself. Watch your response in those moments. And, and speak truth into those moments. I think oftentimes what I've been able to say, man, it's... It's likely, I suspect that maybe you've misunderstood that individual because I know that person, boy, and I have received wise counsel from them on numerous occasions. You see, and that, even something like that just can stop it. Lord, help us, right? We need help. Uh, number six, by having disagreement with a brother or sister in one thing and then deciding to join with them in nothing. Right? To, to just run from them altogether. And you say, well, well, how would that happen here? Aren't we supposed to agree on everything? No. 
We don't agree on everything here. And praise God for that. I mean, goodness, there are some here who would prefer uh, a lot of different, a lot, and some of it substantive even. You know, there, there's certain things you would prefer uh, about the music, right? And, it, and that's not necessarily shallow. It's, there's substantive thoughts you have there. But you, uh, your disagreement on that doesn't cause you to uh, be able to not fellowship, right? To, to cast out your disagreement over a brother or sister in the congregation about, um, about their, their belief about end times or their belief about uh, reformed theology or something. It doesn't cause you to, to disregard them completely, right? And on and on we could go there. So we want to guard against that. It shouldn't. A disagreement with a brother or sister in one thing should not cause us to disregard them completely. Okay. Seven, to commend what we are, excuse me, seven, to commend what we care not for in opposition to what we dislike. Remember, this was in, written in the 1600s. Okay. To commend what we care not for in opposition to what we dislike. That is, we will join with others even though we do not agree with their particular point of complaint. But we will join with them because they will help us defeat the one that we are at odds with. Right? So we may not see eye to eye with them but boy if they'll help us defeat the one we're at odds with boy we'll join with them right so to commend what we are not what we care not for in opposition to what we dislike and I think the, the theme there even as we go would we could really unpack these more and more and Nietzsche that's why I'm glad to see many of you are writing them down to think through it to, to process it but that one even there, it, it, you can see it's the, the ruling heart desire that sort of, that is burning in there is like to, uh, is what you dislike, right? In order to, to defeat that other person in an argument or whatever it would be. Because you've been offended in some way. And so it's like, man, whatever I can do to crush that or to defeat that person, I'm going to do it. Right? Regardless of how I get there. That's a problem. And then the last one is one word, revenge, he says. Revenge. And this keeps a divisive spirit going on perpetually. Doesn't it? Now interesting, Paul says, verse 19, Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you. What? So that, and he tells us why, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul is saying that while the divisiveness is destructive and must be guarded against, 
God will use the, the factions that sinfully come against his church to highlight those who are approved. Right? Those who are causing division, stirring up trouble and spreading falsehood and undermining the ministry of the gospel, whatever fleshly disobedience that flesh, that uh, factious group is doing, this will expose the love and unity and spiritual maturity of those who are not participating in the factious divisive behavior. Right? See, when there is spiritual immaturity in the church, in whatever form that comes, it highlights, as this text says, those who are approved. And here the word approved means those who have been tried in the fire and are proven to be pure. One pastor says it, it this way, church division Ungodly and sinful as it is, nevertheless, it is used by the Lord to prove the worth of his faithful saints. In the midst of bickering and divisiveness, they are separated out as pure gold is from the dross. Evil helps manifest good. Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be manifested. When the church is in trouble with these kinds of things, it is important that the true faithful saints stand up and stand out. Right, Your leadership is needed in hours like these. And the church has carried on. In fact, Certainly going back to Corinth, but this church, right? Those who have been here for some time know that, that God, as God would have it, he has preserved us for many, many years. You know, I think it's, it's worth celebrating to think about how he has preserved us in these things. How he has, how he has separated uh, his saints, if you will, from the dross. And those approved have come forth. And, and then what happens as we stick it out and he refines us. And, and even as we don't do things perfectly here as leaders and as, and as those approved saints, uh, we're not claiming perfection, are we? But we're just saying we're committed to this bride of Christ. And as we've remained committed, we've had the privilege of seeing what he has and will accomplish. That's amazing. It's amazing to think, as you think back even in the history of, of Southern Hills, right? It's worth noting and celebrating that while in the last three pastors, okay, myself and then two others, that, that in the course of, you know, 20 years or less, or 20 years, I would say, uh, and I've been in 10 of those or so, Right? That there's three church splits here. It's worth noting. It's worth noting. That, that by God's grace. One of those pastors that was here. Right. In early 2000. He's been here to preach in our pulpit. Right. Praise God for that. What I'm pointing that out is that, that we've been able to cultivate friendships 
with, with and, and even look, go backwards and, and try to deal with some of these divisions and process and, and be reconciled, even with uh, the pastor that was previous here previously to me and that I served alongside with as an elder, Raiden Hollis. We have also reconciled. And we praise God for that. And I thanked him and do thank him and often think about and thank him for the work that he accomplished while he was here. And how God used him. And we just endure full, we endure together in these things. See? And look, we, we're able to celebrate and we're able to see how God has moved to keep this particular place intact. It's worth noting, it's certainly worth celebrating how God has done that. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life for which the Lord promised to those who loved him. Blessed is the man or woman that, preserves, that perseveres excuse me, under personal trials. That's often how we think about it. But blessed is the man or woman who perseveres under church trials. Amen? We have a responsibility to call out and put down divisive, disruptive behavior when it breaks out because it will destroy. But God uses it, doesn't he? God uses it. A church that is committed to ministering the word of God, not just in big, broad strokes from the pulpit, but also ministering it into the details of everyday lives, we will find our ministry in that together, we will find that as people invite us to come alongside them and help them discern how to follow God in overcoming addictions, anxiety, depression, as people invite us here in this church to come alongside them with the Word and help them in their marital conflicts, People we love and care deeply for will not always be happy with our help or with our decisions that we have made as we seek to counsel in the Word and teach the Word of God to those situations. Additionally, as we as a church maintain together our responsibility to hold people accountable to their everyday confession in Christ, what we will find and what we have found is that not everyone will respond with thank you very much. Not everyone will respond with your godly wisdom, wisdom and discernment in my situation was a great blessing. And this is why we need to be able to trust each other. It's why we need to be able to follow some of all of this instruction here that we're talking about this morning. It's why we need to, to be able to talk to each other and not about each other. Right? And behind each other's backs. And we're committed to that. Maybe uh, I'll try to read more from this Burroughs guy on my sabbatical and do a better job summarizing it and send it to you. How about that? Because I think we might end up calling it the Burroughs 8 so that we can refer to it often. Say, Lord, help us. Because it's interesting, as I was, as I was writing and, and thinking of these things and have been wrestling on these kinds of points, 
I had yet to come across Burroughs 8. But as I was studying the words he wrote 400 years ago and what I was putting on paper, it was astonishing how precise it was to things we deal with right now. And we are seeing right now. As you look at verse 20 and 22, and I realize the last thing I should ever do again is sit down <laughs> when I'm preaching. And those who have been in counseling with me know that I rarely finish a counseling session in an hour. Uh, and so we're in trouble right now. <laughs> as I look, as I looked at the time, and I'm just halfway through my sermon, y'all. <laughs> uh, so we're gonna we're gonna press on. I bet in ten more minutes I get a long way. All right. If we look at verse 22, it's understood that the early church started having what Jude calls love feasts. Look there in verse 22. It's important for us to, to try to get through this here. We see, uh, when you come together, then it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at that meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So what's happening, it's a little different than how we are organized now. It's understood that the early church, as I just mentioned, started having love feasts. We actually see that term, so I'm going to speak faster, okay? Uh, but... It's understood that the early church uh, had these love feasts. Jude 12, you could look there, it refers to the love feast. Love feast also could be translated agape feast, right? And these were fellowship meals where they eat together, followed by the observance of what we are having here today, the Lord's Supper. Now, this type of fellowship blended with formal worship was common practice in the early church. We see it in Acts 2, 42 and 46, uh, this love feast meal, according to our text here, again, appears to culminate in them taking the Lord's Supper. While we don't call them agape feast here or love feast here at Southern Hills, we, I think, have something very similar when we enjoy congregational meals together down in our fellowship hall. The purpose of doing that is to enjoy just that, love and fellowship with one another. It's just not formally linked with our corporate worship service as it seems to have been then. Follow? So in Corinth, it appears it was common. This was a common uh, part of of their fellowship meal and 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 following immediately would be the Lord's Supper and so here's what's happening in this context the church is gathering to eat and not everybody's getting an opportunity to share in the meal all right verse 21 it says look there some come to the meal and remain hungry while another has plenty to eat and drink Enough, we see, even to get drunk. Verse 22 says, don't you have homes to do this in? What should I say to you? Right? Why are you uh, despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing? And so it seems here what is happening is that some are able to get to this meal early, all right? And they're eating everything. 
They're not saving food for those who would actually have a need for food. And so what it tells us is that those who are likely showing up early uh, are the wealthier ones who have more control over their schedules perhaps as, as opposed to those in the church who are slaves, servants, or poor. Because uh, as we read, we see it has to do with those who don't have versus those who have, right? Those who have this low, lower socioeconomic status cannot get there as quickly. And part of the divisions we see in Corinth is about those who have and those who have not. As we see Paul questioning, why are you humiliating those who have nothing? Another possible component here is that there would be a temptation to structure the meal in terms of seating. And what is shared is would be shared uh, with those who have more status. So those who have more status would have better seating, even get to sit down there at the house, and, and those who don't would maybe gather together in another room, and then what food was left over, they might get some and they might not. And this is all in the church. Can you imagine? Could you imagine doing that at one of our fellowship meals? Lining up down there according to what we discern the status was. Wealth, wealthy, uh, go first, please. Oh, my goodness. So let's thank God we're not there, right? <laughs> but let's not look too arrogantly on that and say, Lord, what do you have to teach us? We want to say that. But this was a contradiction of both the love feast and more directly a contradiction of the meal. Right? You can see that even the food itself was not to be the aim of their gathering. They weren't to be showing up to get a full belly. The aim was unity and fellowship. Isn't that our aim here? Right? And that's why he says, hey, what, why do you show up to this meal to eat your own supper? Like it's not about your own. It's about being together. It's about the unity of the bottle, body. All right? not about the bottle in this case right all right okay some of you followed that one uh, right and, and, and so they were they were doing that and it was very much a problem verse 22 don't you have homes to eat and drink in so their behavior is terrible on multiple levels there's food available and the wealthy people who don't need to eat it are eating it and the brothers and sisters who could use the food are actually poor and could actually this may be the best meal of the week for some of them you imagine and what are, they're not getting any. That's messed up. Right? As you read next two, you say, man, it didn't start out this way, did it? They would share with one another, it says there. And already, here they are, doing it like this. Instead of being selfless, they're being selfish. They're showing up and actively and selfishly disregarding their brothers and sisters. And more significantly, they're able to do that because they are disregarding the very thing that they are to be confessing at the Lord's table. The meal highlights and confesses unity, church. By eating, we are confessing our common bond, as we see there in verse 23 and 26. If the usher could go ahead and make the way forward, and I'll keep preaching You just for the Lord's Supper. We're going to pass it here in a minute. Y'all can just have a seat right here so you're ready to go. All right? And we think about that text there. 
verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. It says on the night. And so it's giving us the purpose, right? We're so accustomed to reading this. And, and, uh, and we don't want it to be, we'll read it all the time. But we don't want it to be routine, do we? And, and that's, that's where we're going here. Is that we, we can't have this be routine. This self-examination that is seen there in verse 27 is very important. And so as at the table, what's happening there, even as we see in verse 23 through 26, is that we're to be restating our commitment to the gospel. We as a church are to be restating as we eat and drink this morning. We are restating our understanding of God's love for us and God's love for one another, right? By eating, we state that God has taken sin seriously. How? By giving his own son to die. And we restate our commitment to take sin seriously by pursuing holiness that he purchased for us at the cross. It's not a cheap grace, but a costly grace. Costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinners. And that is why uh, we, we restate, we restate that here when we eat. That it is because of our being justified, because as sinners we have been justified, sin no longer has the power over us it once has. And so we hold one another accountable to that. And we have to battle. We have to battle as we sit at the table to have that unity that the table is emblematic of. Uh, We have to battle. But we will win because he has won. If we battle in the spirit, right? If we battle in consistent with the gospel and the love of Christ, we can overcome because he has overcome. Whether that's individual sin that's grabbed hold of our life, we can overcome that. The the table tells you that this morning. If you're in a battle, the table tells you that. That Christ has won the victory. And if that's the battle that we're facing here because of some divisions and strife that's happening, guess what? The table tells us, no, come sit, come sit. We can all be forgiven and move on and, and come together and be unified. Doesn't it tell us that? I can lay down my divisive tongue. I can lay down my heart and and just submit and surrender. That's what the table tells us. We come together in unity at the table, common allegiance, common mission. And when we sit at the table, what we see that it is for our better. Why? Because it renews. It renews, though, only as far as we interact with our mind spiritually. It renews as we remember that we were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. What grace. What grace. Think of it now, church, as you're sitting at the table here together. What grace that God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. But instead he delivered him up for us. How then can I sit here at this table and remember? How can I remember that? How can I feed at the table? 
How can I come together at the church and feed on the goodness of that truth and not do everything I possibly can to live at peace with my brothers and sisters that are sitting here at the table with me? How can I feed on the humble sacrifice of Christ and then turn and leave the table and stand arrogantly over my brother or sister? How can I drink from the cup, which is the new covenant of His blood poured out from me? How can I drink that and then want vengeance or blood from my brother? How can I sit at the table in which Christ sacrificed to save my life and ensure me a seat here, yet not be willing to make a sacrifice for my brother? How can I sit at the Lord's table and eat the bread that represents His body that was given for me that I might be built up in Him? How can I feed on that bread and be speaking words about my body that that tears down? That's what he's getting at. I can't. And to do so brings judgment on the church and on me. Verse 27 through 34, and we should fear such division in the church. We should fear causing division. Because like disease, it will soon make the whole church sick. So we have to deal with it quickly. And here this morning, church, is our opportunity. Praise God. Here this morning is our opportunity for us to look to Jesus, to gather around the table and think deeply about what we are confessing. Here is our opportunity this morning to look inward and to think deeply about our own lives before the Lord and and, and then to look, look around and look outward and consider how I am living with my brothers and sisters. How am I living in response to His gospel How am I living in faithful response to Him and His call to live in unity with my brothers and sisters? See, divisions aren't always loud and chaotic. We have to be wise and we need the Spirit's direction so we can be discerning and careful and so that we won't be uh, missing out on the renewal that ought to come when we gather around this table to eat this meal. Right? We don't want to come and eat this meal and experience judgment when what ought to be experienced is renewal and forgiveness and assurance of what Christ has done for us. Right? And forgiveness. That can be known here. And, and, and so we need that. We need that. So when we eat, we should examine ourselves. When we eat, we should make sure we come prepared. If we have something against a brother, or if we know a brother has something against us, we do everything possible as far as it depends on us to make that right. See, at the table, we're eating gospel. We've said that before. You're eating the gospel. Visibly. You see that? Isn't that interesting? 
And you're stating things about your belief in the gospel and your allegiance to it and your common mission that you're on with all those who are at the table with you. You aren't just taking it as an individual. You're eating the gospel. And what this text, I think, in part is saying that, church, we don't want to be guilty of eating the gospel and then turning from here today and going and vomiting out things that are anti-gospel. So God, help us. Help us not be guilty and help us take this with the unity of spirit in which he has purchased us with. Amen? So let's take it. Let's get the people up here to, to lead us in some worship. I'm going to pray and start passing the meal out. These people are hungry. All right? And we got to feed them. All right? Hungry spiritually. Amen? Because otherwise you would have ate breakfast at home. Eat at home, church. Right? Here we're, to feed, we're feeding spiritually this morning because we need Christ. Right? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the meal. We thank you for what it represents. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this opportunity that we get to restate to one another the grace that you have extended to us that we get to richly receive by faith. Nothing that we have done, we get to pull right up to the table right now this morning and feed on your gospel and be reminded of how you have knit us together through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you for purchasing us, for sacrificing for us. God, may we be faithful even now as we take this time as the music is played to reflect and think deeply about some of the things in this text so that we do not take with a divided heart that you help us right now in this time as the music is played, Lord, and we worship in our hearts and worship with our voices, God, that you will help us to, to not, uh, that you convict us. We don't want to take having something against somebody in our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that you will reveal to us, even as we pray, that as we examine ourselves, that you your spirit would reveal to us if we have something against somebody else that we need to deal with before we take. We're looking for you to help us in this time and in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen.